We're in a little series accounted as righteousness, and we've been studying Romans uh, 4, and this is the third of those messages. And uh, we, uh, we've been hearing a lot about God's righteousness and how he gives us that righteousness, and so we want to uh, just spend a little time um, setting up our, our text uh, for today. I'll go ahead and, and read the text, verses 9 to 15. You can follow along in your Bibles, and then we will have some opening comments and then get into the text itself. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham in his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. It's sad to go in different parts of the world. If you've traveled, you know this, and there's certain places that are very religious. Uh, one is the, the shrine of uh, Guadalupe, Mexico, and this shrine apparently is built um, where they believe the Mother Mary appeared on one occasion. And many people uh, go there and in hope of her somehow interceding for them with her son, Jesus Christ, uh, myriads of people make a pilgrimage there. And once there, they crawl on their hands and their knees for about a quarter mile to the shrine, thinking somehow that appeases God. Then they enter the shrine and they light various candles. And each candle is basically for a friend or relative who has since passed from this life and they believe is in purgatory, a place between heaven and hell, which is an untruth in and of itself. Other parts of the world, there's Hindu festivals. We saw people on our plane when we were coming back from India, and they were all uh, dressed a certain way, looked very peaceful. They had their little notepads. And I was sitting next to a lady in the plane, and she kept on writing something in the notepad over and over and over and over again. And I come to find out her and her group had made a trip, a pilgrimage to the, the River Ganges and did the whole ritualistic thing over there. And they said, oh, there's so much um, good that comes out of that. You have peace in your heart and you have a renewed faith. 
And I thought, how sad is that? And we heard other people going to speak to a certain teacher over there that they uh, respected. And if you've been tracking as we've been going through Romans, the one message that rings out loud and clear from Paul is religion can't save you. Religion cannot save you. Um, He keeps on bringing up this subject of God's righteousness. And he keeps on saying that God's righteousness is credited to, to us by faith alone. And after a while, you're, you're studying this text and you're thinking, man, Paul, why do you have to keep on saying this over and over and over? I mean, just to give you a little idea of how many times he said it, just look back on the left of your Bible there to Romans 3.22. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then go to verse 26 of chapter 2 of Romans So then he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word justifier means to declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. And then he says it again in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified, what? By faith apart from works of the law. And he keeps on going throughout chapter 4, verse 3. He's citing from Genesis chapter 15 here. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And just in case we missed it, he brings it up again in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, has faith, his faith is credited as righteousness. And if you still didn't get it, look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he's not done yet. Verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That word take into account means it is a credit. Take into account. But he's still not done. He anticipates the reaction from the religious Jews who are hearing this nonsense from Paul in their mind. And they're real thinking, they're thinking this. Yeah, God credits righteousness by faith. But it's only for those who are circumcised, Paul. You know that. It's only for the circumcised. It's not for those uncircumcised Gentile dogs. That's what they referred to him as. So in verses 9 through 12 of Romans 4, he proves from the Old Testament that God credited righteousness to Abraham by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And that was probably about ready to blow their minds, to be honest with you. And he beats the same drum over and over and over again. In verse 9 of chapter 4, he cites uh, Genesis 15, 6. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, he insists that it was credited to him while he was still uncircumcised. In verse 11, he repeats that the uncircumcised who believe will have righteousness credited to him. In verse 12, he applies it to the uncircumcised or to the circumcised Jews. He says, they too must follow in the steps of faith of Abraham, which he had while he was yet still uncircumcised. And so he even anticipates another objection to his argument from the religious views. And they're going to say, surely we have become heirs of God's promises to Abraham through the law. That's how 
we have become heirs of God's promises through Abraham. And so therefore, Gentiles must keep the law if they're going to come under the same kind of blessings. That's what they were thinking. And this was the teaching of a group known as the Judaizers in Paul's day. And they plagued his ministry. If you look over at Acts chapter 15, we learn just a little bit about the Judaizers. Acts 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were confronting Paul with this heretical teaching. And even in, I think it's Galatians, uh, in the book of Galatians, he brings it up as well. And, and I think it's important for us to understand that this is not a small matter in their mind. This is something that is a pretty big deal. This is something that really weighed on their conscience as the Jewish people because they were about to uh, have everything, all their beliefs basically, crushed under their foot because Paul was teaching something that was totally opposite of what they truly believed. And if you look through the whole, the whole book of, of, um, of Galatians, but especially in chapter uh, 5, he says verse, in verse 5, Galatians 5, 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so Paul brought this up over and over and over again. And Paul insisted that the true heirs of the promise to Abraham are not those who are of the law, but those who are rather of faith. And he sums it up, if you just jump down, we're going to get into this probably next week. But verse 16 of Romans 4, he says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only, uh, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so he wants them to understand. And so you wonder, why does Paul keep on bringing this up? The truth that God's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone. I'm sure he has a reason. I think it's because he knows how deeply, really embedded in the fallen human heart, the idea that somehow we can do something to earn our right, before God, to commend ourselves to God. I mean, all you have to do is look at religion today and over the past several thousand years. All religions, including even some major ones, by the way, that go under the label of Christian religion, are works-oriented. They teach what Paul explicitly and repeatedly denies here. That at least in part, we are saved by keeping religious rituals and by our good deeds. That's what they teach. And I just want to give you a quick example of some of this teaching from the background that I came from. And this isn't meant to pick on Roman Catholics at all. I was a Roman Catholic for 19 years of my life. But 
God gloriously saved me out of that religion. And I just want to share with you so that maybe you can be a little bit better well-informed what the Catholic Church teaches. And this is found in the, 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 the Council of Trent, and you can look this up on your own. In the Second Vatican Council in the 60s, they affirmed this, by the way. They didn't overturn this. The Council of Trent did not deny, listen, that we are saved by God's grace through faith. They didn't deny that. But what they did is they added works to faith. So they combined justification and sanctification. Remember, justification is our right standing before God. Sanctification is the growth that happens in holiness subsequent to being saved, to being justified. And so they made justification a process that depends in part on our good works. Rather than God just declaring us righteous, they said, oh, no, 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 it's not that easy. And they believe this to this degree, and some of this is kind of hard language, it's older language, but you can put them up there on the screen. Um, The first quote is from the, the Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, the he says, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification. What's it say? Let him be anathema. In other words, that's not good. <laughs> Second quote, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. Third quote, if anyone says that the justice received is not persevered and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. What's that saying? That's saying you're not just justified by faith alone, you're justified by works. Your justification increases as your works increase. And then the last quote, Session 6, Canon 30, this is a little more um, to the point. He says, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, okay, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discarded either in this world or in the next, in, there it is, purgatory, before entrance into the kingdom of heaven, before it can be opened to him, let him be anathema. That's pretty clear teaching. That's what they hold today. They believe that you don't just come to Christ by faith, no. You, they, they actually think it's a sin to say that you're guaranteed of heaven based on the blood and sacrifice of Christ. They say, oh, no, even a Catholic won't admit that. They'll say, no, 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 it's, you know, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. Hopefully, I'll go to purgatory, and then maybe if a lot of people are praying for me, and God will kind of weigh things out, and maybe in a couple years I'll make it to glory. I don't know. That's what they believe. That's not taught in Scripture, beloved. That goes against the very 
message of the gospel that we preach. That doesn't sound like good news. Oh, come, come and devote yourself to the church, and then hopefully, maybe, depending on who's paying the church afterwards and lighting enough candles, you might make it to heaven. If you're good enough. To me, that's sad news. The Catholic, Roman Catholic Church declares that we are justified before God by grace through faith, but not through faith alone. We have to add our works, our good works to that faith in order to obtain, to persevere, and to increase our right standing before God. That's what they believe. And the process is not completed at the initial point of faith in Christ. It's not even completed in this life. It's only completed, hopefully, one day in purgatory. You're suffering for your sins. I don't know about you, but that's denying the sufficiency of Christ. That's denying the sufficiency of the guilty sinner's faith in Christ's sacrifice as a means to right standing before God. Now, like I said, I don't want to be unkind to Roman Catholics at all. That's not my intention. But when there's error, we need to point it out. And we need, it needs to be confronted with the truth. I say it because I care deeply that Catholics come to a proper understanding of what Paul teaches about this very, very, very crucial matter on how a person gets right with God. And even if you're not from a Catholic background, because of the fall, because of our own sin, let me tell you, we're all prone to trust in our religious activities. We're prone to trust in our good works as a basic standard for our standing before God. It's just kind of the way we fall, the way we go. That's, that's what happens. And in Paul's proof here of the gospel from the life of Abraham, there is a phrase that is, is worth returning to, even though I've passed it by in, in some certain discussions. But it says the phrase is the footsteps of faith. The footsteps of faith. To walk in another's footsteps means walking in a single file so that the ground covered by the leader is covered in turn by each follower. I was watching a program on the military channel and they were showing people who were clearing minefields and bombs in the military. The one guy would go out and the guy behind him would walk right where he's walking. Why? Because he knew it was safe. He didn't think, oh, I'm going to make my own set of footprints. No, he had to walk in that leader's footprints. And this suggests you know what? That we're, we're on a journey, aren't we? Sometimes we think of the Christian life only in terms of a fixed decision that we made in the past. That we were born again. That we decided to follow Christ. And there's some truth in that. But let me tell you, being born again... It happens only once in our lives. But you know what? We can over, 
kind of go overboard with that idea to some degree because we're holding on to past experiences, past, past decisions. And then we, we move on very little from that point. See, those events, when you came to Christ, that's only the beginning of your Christian life. That's not the beginning and the end. You have to think of the Christian life as a pilgrimage in which every step is taken by faith and it's taken in the same direction, the direction that was marked out by Abraham. Abraham was a pilgrim throughout his entire life and we're like him. We have to be looking forward to the city with foundation whose builder and maker is God. See, Abraham's faith was measured by his clearly defined steps in his life. The first was when God called him, and he responded in obedience. You can read about that in Genesis 12. It says, by faith, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. I don't know about you, but that's faith. God calls you to go somewhere, and he doesn't tell you where you're going. It's interesting, when you read of that account of Abraham, when God first called him, the first thing I noticed was that that calling was, it was initiated entirely by God. It wasn't initiated by Abraham. It was initiated by God. Abraham did not seek God out for himself any more than we do. In fact, the Bible tells us that Abraham was a worshiper of false gods at that time. And at the start had no appreciation for the true God whatsoever. He was in the same categories that we read in the Bible of those who repress the truth. The fact that Abraham did not follow after the true God was due solely to to God's intervention in his life when he did. When you look through Genesis 12, you see seven I wills, and we're not going to get into all this, but you can look at them on your own. First of all, God says, I will show you a land. Secondly, I will make you into a great nation. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great, fourthly. Fifthly, I will bless those who bless you. Sixthly, it's kind of a negative promise. I will curse those who curse you. And then the seventh promise that God promised Abraham was, I will give you this land. Now, in no way did Abraham ever do anything to merit the appearance of God to him. Nor does he contribute anything to the promises that God utters. It's a matter of God simply deciding, I'm going to do this, and this is who I'm going to do it to. See, that's why our own salvation, it's a matter of election, pure and simple. And Paul wants us to see in this text that salvation does not come through religious rituals or by the law, but through God crediting righteousness through faith alone. Well, let's look at our text, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. It says, and this, or this, is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised. What's this blessing talking about? 
He's referring about back to basically verses 7 and 8. God not counting our sins against us, which means we are saved. So the blessing is referring to our salvation. And the first thing Paul does here is he shows that Abraham was not justified after he was circumcised, but before. The first point in your outline, the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping religious rituals, but through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. And you can apply that to any religious rituals. It's not just circumcision. It could be baptism, it could be communion, it could be going to mass, it could be praying the rosary, going to confession. You can sum these up under two headings. The first one, God credits righteousness to the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. See, this was the shocking point that Paul made all the way back in verse 5. Because the Jewish culture was like, hey, the more you work, the harder you try, the better God looks at you, the higher you get up there spiritually. And when Paul in verse 5 of Romans 4 said, but to the one who does not work, (laughs) wait a minute, you don't have to work? Nope. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You mean God justifies people who are not godly? Their thinking was, no, God only justifies those who are righteous and those who do good works. It says his faith is is credited as righteousness. See, most people would assume that that verse should read, but to the one who tries hard, to the one who believes in him, he justifies all the good people. His faith is credited as righteousness, but it doesn't. Paul specifically states on the one hand that this person isn't trying hard. He does not work for his own salvation. On the other hand, he's not described as somebody who's godly. He's described as somebody who is ungodly. See, we have to get out of our mind that somehow that God looks down from heaven and sees all of our religiosity and goes, Oh, goody, I'm I'm glad. That makes me smile. See, in this text... He isn't a religious person who tries to obey God. He isn't a person who devotes his life to serving the poor. He isn't a person who never deliberately hurts anyone. What's it say? He is what? Ungodly. God justifies the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary. Who did the Jews view as ungodly? The Gentiles, right? They consider them dogs. And they viewed themselves as basically the only godly people that there were. And you have to understand that when it comes to circumcision, that was really the main religious ritual that distinguished a Jew from a Gentile. That's the one way you could tell. When Abraham was 99 years old, God commanded him to circumcise himself. Wow. And all the males in his own household. I always feel sad for the little baby boys that go in to get circumcised. 
hear him crying. He's like, wow. Can you imagine Abraham, <laughs> 99 years old? He had to circumcise himself. Wow, talk about a step of faith, man. He extended that command for all the Jewish baby boys throughout all the generations that they be circumcised on the eighth day. And what was that? It was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Genesis 17, verses 11 to 12. See, but Paul, here he points out a simple fact of Old Testament chronology that might give them a little problem in their religiosity as a Jew in Paul's day. Because God's command to Abraham to be circumcised happened at least 14 years after the incident in Genesis 15 where God credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. So Abraham was in fact, was in fact still an uncircumcised Gentile when he was declared righteous before God. And so Paul, he basically turns the tables on the Jewish school of thought because they argued for circumcision as it's essential for salvation. Just like some Christians today argue that baptism is essential for salvation. Paul's saying here that it's not for the Gentiles to enter through the gate of Jewish circumcision, but rather for the Jews to enter through the gate of Gentile faith apart from circumcision. I mean, just to put it in modern terms, you don't get saved or justified by being baptized or by taking communion. You don't get saved by going to church (laughs) or by faithfully saying your prayers at night. I can't remember a night growing up that I didn't say my prayers. Went to bed, that's the first thing I did. But you know what? There was a major disconnect in my life. I could sit down and rattle off two or three prayers in less than 30 seconds. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, my woman, blessed through my own Jesus, holy Mary, mother of God. I go right through that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless the world. That's what my ritual was every night. It was pure ritual. That doesn't save you. Rather, you get saved when God credits the very righteousness of Christ to you the instant you believe in Him. Salvation does not come through the performance of any religious rituals, but only through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Romans 3.25. Well, you ask, well, then what are all these religious rituals about? Should we just throw them all out? Should we forget about them? No. Second point in your outline. Religious rituals serve as signs and seals for the reality or of the reality that comes through faith in Christ. See, look at verse 11, Romans 4, verse 11. He refers to circumcision as both a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham had while he was uncircumcised. Verse 11 says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
There's a purpose in it. These religious rituals had a purpose. That makes him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. Now what is a sign? When you think of a sign, a sign is not the real thing, right? A sign points to the real thing. So you may be driving up 280 and it may say Redwood City 10 miles. Well, you're not going to stop at the sign and say, well, we've arrived at Redwood City. It says, no, it's, the sign is pointing you to Redwood City. Circumcision was a physical sign in every Jewish man's flesh that pointed to the fact that he belonged to God. And he was God's chosen people. He was in covenant with God and God's people. He was separated to God through the shedding of even his own blood. It was a sign of purification from the flesh so that both Moses and the prophets exhorted Israel spiritually to circumcise their hearts, not just physically. Now you relate that to the day, today, our churches, things like that. As Christians, baptism is a sign for us, right? It's a sign that your sins have been washed away through the faith, through your faith in Christ. It's a, a picture of the truth that you've been identified completely, that you've been immersed completely with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Another sign we have is the Lord's Supper. It's a sign of the new covenant, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. Showing that you are a partaker in Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. See, the sign is not the reality, but it points to the reality. The reality is God's promise to forgive all of our sins. To impute Christ's righteousness to our account by faith alone. Well, what's a ritual? A ritual is a sign of the reality. If you don't have the reality, the ritual is worthless. If the sign says Redwood City, 10 miles, but there is no place that's that's called Redwood City, there's no place known as Redwood City, the sign is worthless. Going through the ritual of going another 10 miles would be worthless if it didn't exist. See, a seal... And he also refers to a seal heel, a seal in the, uh, uh, the text. Circumcision as not only a sign, but as a seal. And a seal authenticates or attests to the reality of something. If you've ever gone to the notary republic, my, my wife was a notary for years when she used to work with the bank. And so people would bring her documents. And she would look at the documents to verify that they're real. And then they would sign the documents. And then she would put a stamp her stamp, her notary over top of their signatures to make sure that it was a real thing. If you have a passport, okay, they take a picture. You send the picture to them. They, they take that picture and they make it part of your passport in such a way that it can't be removed. And you'll see a seal of the United States government on that passport. Circumcision attested to the reality of Abraham's previous faith that justified him and to God's covenant with him. But it was the faith that justified him. It wasn't the act of circumcision. He was already justified before God. 
And so Paul needs to point this out to his Jewish believers. And Paul applies this to the Jews in in verse 12. He says in verse 12, And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I mean, I'm sure his readers, the Jewish readers and the the Jewish hearers of Paul's message were just doing gymnastics in their mind at this point. Because everything he was telling them was against what they believed. He was basically saying, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, the key is simply that you have to believe God's promise to justify the ungodly. That's what you have to believe. The rituals follow as signs and seals, but the reality is through faith alone. Well, what about the benefit of religious rituals in our own church? We call them ordinances, such as baptism or communion. Should we even do them? Well, yeah, we should, because Scripture commands us to do them. But they should only be done after you have put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior and received his righteousness. See, they become a sign pointing to the reality and a seal that attests to your faith in Christ. Now, there's some folks that would argue about the idea of baptism. In our church, we believe that you should profess Christ before you're baptized, before you walk through the waters of baptism, because it's a picture of your salvation. It's a picture of your faith in Christ. That's what it was in the New Testament. You look throughout the New Testament, everyone who was baptized was a follower of Christ. But there's some people today that would argue for infant baptism and they point to Romans chapter 4 verse 11 as a key and they argue that although for Abraham circumcision pointed back to his previous faith for Abraham's descendants it was done for them as infants and so it pointed ahead to their faith that they would exercise and they argue that baptism has replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant And so therefore, that's why they believe we should baptize infants. And you might say, well, what do you say to that? How do you answer that? Well, briefly, very briefly, in the New Testament, you're not going to find one example or one command to baptize babies. You're not going to see it. It's not there. Rather, every mention of baptism in the New Testament shows that it's the appropriate response to someone's saving faith. It's not a precursor to it. Baptism doesn't look forward to one day you believing. No, baptism is a sign in the New Testament that you have believed, that you've trusted Christ. The last time I checked, it's rather hard for a little baby that doesn't understand anything to trust Christ. While the New Testament shows some correspondence between baptism and circumcision, there's some relationships there. But it explicitly mentions faith 
in every context, such as Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. So my argument's an argument from silence. It doesn't mention it. But there's a lot of many New Testament discussions about circumcision. And there's absolutely no reference to it now being replaced by baptism. None at all. And there's several significant differences between circumcision and baptism. But if you look at the parallels, you just don't see the support there for that. A lot of the people that believe in infant baptism, by the way, believe that somehow Israel has replaced, or the church has replaced Israel. So all the promises to Israel, they believe in replacement theology. All the promise to Israel is void, and now they apply to the church. And so therefore, the sign, the seal of circumcision, transfers over directly to baptism. And so they don't have a problem baptizing little babies. Uh, So baptism should only be administered, what the Bible says, is to those who give a clear profession of faith in Christ. And by the way, it's the first real act of obedience to someone who's come to Christ. When you look throughout the New Testament, those who trusted Christ, one of the first things they did was, hey, let's get baptized. Why? Because it identified them with Christ. What did that mean? Well, first of all, they didn't do it in a church in a nice warm, warm baptistry amongst Christian friends. They usually did it down by the riverside. And when they did it down by the riverside, people would gather. And they would see Brother Jones going in the water saying, Wow, now he's a Christian. He's a Christ follower. I'm not going to fellowship with him anymore. I'm not going to buy his goods anymore. He's a traitor. And there was basically a lot of contention against those who publicly followed Christ and were willing to be baptized. We see that throughout the world today. We see people who have trusted Christ, and they're in prison. Think of Brother Saeed over in in prison. Will he get out? Who knows? Will he be killed? Who knows? God knows. I'm sure his trust is not in the U.S. government. His trust is not in the captors who are holding him, but his trust is in his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's waiting And he's probably serving him until the day that he either goes to him directly or he is released. And so baptism is is something that should only be administered to someone who has made a profession of faith. Now, there are some denominations, Roman Catholics being one, Orthodox, Anglican, and, and some Lutheran churches, that teach baptism imparts regeneration to the babies. In other words, the reason that you have a baby baptized in the Catholic Church is because they believe that by having that baby baptized, they're born again. They're saved. They're, they're placed under the grace of Christ. And so they practice infant baptism. And it's a pretty big deal. And if you're a Catholic, and you're a faithful Catholic, and you don't get your baby baptized, that's not a good deal. That's not, you're, not, you're not in the, the good graces of the church. Others... They may practice infant baptism, but they don't do it for regenerational purposes, such as some Presbyterians, Reformed Church, Methodists. They do it more as a sign, like I said, of the circumcision being replaced by baptism. So they believe the babies were circumcised on the eighth day, so the the babies should be baptized when they're little. But they don't believe the baptism saves them. 
But I would argue this, that if you're going to baptize babies, it does potential harm later on in life for those children. And I, the reason I say that is because I think it would give you some false assurance that they're right with God through a ritual. A lot of times if you ask somebody, hey, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? Once in a while, you'll get the response, oh, no, I've been baptized. <laughs> really? So that baptism has saved you. Well, I was baptized as a Catholic when I was a baby, yeah. That's what they believe. But that's not true. So they're led down a false path. See, we're, we're made right with God through faith in Christ alone, beloved. And Paul here anticipates his Jewish readers bringing up the law. Surely Paul wouldn't throw out the law. He wouldn't throw out God's law. Don't the Gentiles have to keep the law in order to call Abraham their father, Paul? Look at point two in your outline. Number two, the blessing of salvation does not come through keeping the law, but through God crediting righteousness to us through faith alone. Verses 13 to 15. See, the Jews would not have restricted the obedience which they thought necessary for salvation to circumcision. They wouldn't have just said it was circumcision. They would have made the whole law the deal. That's why they were always making up new laws, because they couldn't really keep God's law. So they said, well, you know, it says keep the Sabbath, but who can do that? So let's say you can't carry a stick more than 12 inches, more than 50 feet on the Sabbath. <laughs> That's a good one. Throw up. We'll do another one. You know, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't pick grain, you know, and eat it on the Sabbath. They, they had all these silly rules that they made up. God never gave them. So that they could keep those, and then they could kind of pat themselves on the back and build up their own self-righteousness. And Paul countered that argument. And by the way, some of that creeps into our churches today, even evangelical churches, even conservative churches. Somehow you think that by being here today, marking out this period of time, coming here, I mean, you could be home watching the 49ers right now but you're here. So in your mind, what do you do? You think, wow, you know, I'm giving up the game, man. Surely God's going to look good on this. He's going to bless me. I went to church today. I even put something in the offering today. And we begin to think kind of legalistically about those things. And Paul here counters their argument. And he does so by showing that the law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, does not invalidate the previous covenant. Instead, he limits himself here to the argument of Genesis or of Galatians 3:18. And he says basically the concept of the covenant promise is fundamentally opposed to the concept of law. He says it in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law, but through what? The righteousness of faith. And then he explains it in verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. What's he saying? First of all, he's saying if you seek to be justified by keeping God's law, 
you make faith void and you nullify God's promise. When you stop and think about it, the argument's really simple. The principle of receiving a gift by faith, think about this with me, is the opposite of receiving a reward that you work for, which he already covered in Romans 3 and also in verse 4 of Romans 4. If you offer me a gift and I say, you know, let me pay you, pay you, pay you back for it. I want to pay you for the gift. I'll come and wash your car or something. What did I do? I turned that gift into something that I owe you. And you end up owing me. Well, God promises, beloved, to justify the ungodly person who does not deserve it, but who receives it freely by his grace. If you mix human works with God's grace, then grace is no longer grace. The promise of salvation as a free gift received by faith has been nullified and turned into a debt for payment or services rendered. B, if you seek to be justified by keeping the law rather than gaining the blessing of salvation, you actually incur God's wrath. That's what he says in verse uh, verse, uh, 15. He says, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's he say? He's explaining here the attempt to gain salvation by the law is doomed to fail. You can't do it. You're never going to be able to do enough good in your own life where God's going to look down and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to give you a pass. Everybody else had to come through the work of Christ, but you know, you're working really hard and I see a sweating every day trying to do all this stuff and I'm just going to give you a pass. No, it's not going to happen. The law brings wrath because no one can keep it perfectly. Look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 10. What's he say? For whoever keeps the whole law... You're keeping the whole law. You're doing pretty good. But fails in one point. Uh Uh-oh. Has become accountable for all of it. Any failure makes you liable for God's judgment. There's no makeup test. There's no go-round, collect $200, none of that. The second phrase doesn't mean that there is no sin when there is no law. Because Paul previously stated the Gentile who did not know the explicit commands of God is guilty of violating his own conscience, right? We saw that in Romans chapter 2. But what he's pointing out, he's saying the Jew who knows the law and violates it is going against what he explicitly knows to be right. The law shows us what sin is. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. We'll get to this eventually, but eventually Paul asks this question. What shall we say then? Romans 7, 7. That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, what? I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, etc., etc. So to know the law and violate it, what are you doing? You're incurring God's wrath to a greater degree than one who doesn't know the law at all. There's only two possible eternal futures for every person. Do you understand this? There's only two. Either you're an heir of the world as a true descendant of Abraham, verse 13, or you're an heir of God's wrath as one who sought to be right with God by keeping the law. Either you did it your way (laughs) and thought, well, I can work my way and be good enough and do all these things and eventually God will like me more. Or you can... Be a follower of Abraham and God's promises to Abraham. Paul is really summing up God's promises that Abraham would have a large number of descendants from many nations. That he would possess the land. That he would be, what, a channel of blessing to all these people of the earth. You know that Jesus Christ is the final seed of Abraham, descendant of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. And if we're going through Christ through faith, then we too are heirs with him. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So just to wrap things up here, in verse 9, he said this blessing, which refers to the blessing that Paul talks about from Psalm 32, the blessing of knowing that all your lawless deeds, all your sin has been forgiven. That is a blessing. That your sins have been covered. That God won't take those sins into account on judgment day. You want that blessing? I'll tell you, you won't get it by being born into a Christian home. You won't get it by being faithful in your attendance at a Christian church. You won't even get it by being baptized. You won't get it by partaking of communion. You won't get the blessing of God's forgiveness by doing penance or devoting yourself to some sacrificial service to the poor. You won't get the blessing of salvation through religious rituals or by keeping the law. Rather, God forgives all of our sins. He credits Christ's righteousness to us if we put our faith, our trust in Christ, in Jesus, and He shed blood. Because, beloved, religion cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. But the good news is that Jesus can. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would use these words to encourage us, to build us up in our faith. Lord, I pray for any here who have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior yet, have not put their faith and trust, that are still trying to work out somehow being good enough so you could like them. 
so that you could save them. Lord, you say you want to save us just as we are. We come to you broken in our sin because there is no other Savior. There is no other way. We need to give up working for our salvation and simply trust in the work of Christ. Simple thing I'm reminded of that separates those who have trusted in Christ and those who have not. Someone who's trusted in Christ, I think of the word done, D-O-N-E, done. You're trusting in something that was done for you. You're trusting in something that Christ did 2,000 plus years ago on Calvary, paid the price of your sin. You're looking back to what was done on the cross. And you're putting your faith and trust in a God who promises to save you if you do that. Or you could be trusting, not in what was done for you, but what you do, D-O. Maybe you think somehow that you're religious, that somehow God owes you a blessing because you've come here this morning. Maybe you say prayers before you eat. Maybe you're kind to the gentleman on the street that needs a handout. Maybe you're a good father, mother. All those things are wonderful, but they're not going to save you. They're not going to increase your standing before God one iota. And if that's in what you're trusting, and if you're trusting in what you do before God, you're going to be sorely mistaken one day when you stand before Jesus Christ and you say, hey, wait a minute, didn't, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Wait, I was in church every Sunday. I was a good father. I was a good mother. I helped the poor. And Jesus turns and says, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Father, we pray that you would do that work of salvation in each heart that's here. That you would show us our inability to save ourselves and put our faith and trust in you and you alone. And for us who have trusted you, Lord, I pray that you'd remind us of your goodness to us each day, each morning as we take a breath and rise out of bed. Our heart should well up with thanksgiving and thankfulness to a God that has saved us and saved us eternally. doesn't depend on what we do. Lord, we thank you for that blessing. Pray that we would share that message with many. And Lord, we pray today that you would dismiss us with your blessing. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.